The message for today comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Please join me in a brief time of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, once again, we just pray that you would still our minds and our hearts and our soul and any anxiety that we may be experiencing. We pray that you would cause us, Lord, to focus our attention upon you and upon your Son, upon your glory. We pray that as we look into these two verses that are so packed with meaning and practical application, and deep theological truths regarding your Son. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us your word. Pray that by your word, you would mold us into the image of your Son. We pray that you would enable us to see a greater glimpse of your glory this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, every, um, every homeowner uh, knows that one of your uh, greatest uh, fears, one of your greatest nightmares is uh, starting to see, you know, cracks in your walls, right? Cracks in your ceilings that maybe aren't going in the right direction or shouldn't be there at all. Doors that no longer open right or shut right, and you begin to wonder, there's something wrong with the foundation, right? Because nobody wants a foundation problem. Uh, it can be a nightmare. It can be uh, extremely expensive to repair. Uh, I remember uh, years ago, uh, Terry and I were looking for a, a home, a new home, and uh, it was here locally somewhere, and we saw this uh, ad on, a, uh, I don't know, one of those real estate websites, and it showed photos of the inside of the house, and it was vacant, and it was a beautiful home for dirt cheap. And we thought, hmm, well, the price is worth looking at. And so we went there, and uh, sure enough, beautiful home, marble floors, great location, uh, foundation problems so severe, you could see the floor sort of shifted in certain places, and uh, the real estate agent said, yes, this is why it is so inexpensive, uh, you know, it can be fixed, they've already looked into it, it, it can be repaired, but it's going to cost 
tens of thousands of dollars to repair the foundation. But if you're willing to do that, you know, you'll have a nice big home. And uh, yeah, we didn't want that headache, right? So we went elsewhere, because uh, who wants to move into a house that immediately needs to have major foundation repair done to it? Of course, most of us are aware of uh, one of the most famous foundation problems in the world is the Tower of Pisa, right? I mean, who's not familiar with that? It's an interesting story, if you're familiar with it. You know, it actually took 200 years to build that tower. It's seven floors, seven stories. It took 200 years to build it. Construction began in August of 1173, and um, it... uh, began to sink after the second floor. They got to the second floor, and it started sinking. You wonder why they continued. Uh, Pride? I don't know. But they continued building, and uh, they didn't actually complete the second floor until 1178. So started in 73, 1178. They got done with the second floor. It's already starting to sink, just a little. Maybe they thought, well, maybe that's as far as it'll go, right? We won't worry about it for now. But then construction got halted for about 100 years. They stopped working on it because then they were, uh, Pisa was in various uh, wars with surrounding city states in that day and age, Genoa, uh, Florence, Lucia, and so they were engaged in wars for about 100 years. The tower begins, resumes construction in the year 1272 with more gradual sinking. As they continue to build, it sinks more. So one way they try to fix it, I thought this was interesting, I learned this uh, reading up on it recently, is that the side that is leaning, they started to extend the walls, hoping to maybe make it look straight, will make this side taller than the other side. So it not only leans, but if you look closely at it, it actually curves. It is a messed up building. (laughs) It eventually ended up leaning almost six degrees is the amount of lean. Uh, They completed the tower in 1372, and uh, and there it stood, leaning about six degrees for that length of time. It wasn't until the collapse of a tower in 1989 in France that uh, they ended up closing the Tower of Pisa from 1990 to 2001. They called in all kinds of international engineers to try to save this thing because it was such a, just a historic monument at, at that point. And uh, they did all kinds of different things to it. They, uh, they tried to stabilize the base of the side where it's leaning. They put weights on the other side of it to help make it lean more that way. And then they ended up putting these cables on it. They strapped cables around it that extend several hundred feet and are anchored into the ground, pulling the tower away from its lean so that people can actually go uh, inside of it now. So apparently it is safe to go inside if you want to visit the Tower of Pisa. Uh, interestingly enough, there is debate as to who the original builder and designer is, probably to his benefit, right? Like, who wants to be known for the one that built and designed this thing? Uh, so we don't really know. It's, it's a toss-up between two individuals. Records, accurate records, were not really kept well, so we don't know uh, who to blame for the Tower of Pisa. But... This is what Paul is going to begin to address in this section that we're going to look at, because uh, as I said at the beginning, I mean, every builder will tell you that the most important part of any structure is the foundation, 
Because you can have a great design. You can have the best building material, all of the highest quality material, but if you build it on bad ground, then none of it really matters because it's going to begin to sink or it's going to fall apart. Or if you build it over a sinkhole, well, there it goes, right? The whole thing is going to simply disappear on you. You've got to make sure you've got the ground just right before you start building upon it. And so this is what Paul is going to begin to address when we look at verses 10 and 11. And what he does is he picks up on the last phrase in verse 9. Remember verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so from verses 5 to verse 9, remember he's been using more of a farming metaphor that, uh, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, God provide the growth. He's using this farming metaphor. But then he gets down to the end and he says, you are God's field, you are God's building. So then he picks up on that last phrase regarding God's building and he's going to start talking about what a building looks like and what it should be like and the importance of the foundation and the importance upon the importance about how you build upon that foundation. Because Paul wants them to understand that as a church, as a church, the foundation that was laid for them is good. It was a good foundation. And if they start tinkering with it, which he's going to address in verse 11, if they start messing with that foundation, trying to improve upon it somehow, trying to add to it in some way, they're simply going to mess up the entire thing. They're going to destabilize the building itself, which is the church. And he's not talking about a church building. He's talking about the, uh, the invisible church. He's talking about the true church. Because church is not a building, and we'll talk more about that in coming weeks. The church is the people of God. The people of God united in one place for corporate worship, united in heart and mind. Whether they're united for corporate worship or not, the church is the people of God throughout all generations from the beginning of time to the end of time. And there is one foundation for the entire church. Not just the New Testament church, but also the Old Testament church as well. The Old Testament people of God. All of God's people are the church, and there is one foundation. And so he shifts metaphors, and he'll start to talk about a building. And, uh, but this is planned. Uh, I don't think Paul you know, wrote that last phrase and thought, oh, Boy, that, that might be good. Maybe I should, maybe I should go there. You know, I think Paul planned out his writings. He thought through what he was going to say and why he was going to say it. And what he understands is that the farming uh, analogy works, but only to a certain extent. All of what he has said is true. That in a sense, ministry, the church, is like farming and that some people plant seeds, others come along and water God provides a growth, but he also understands that the church in many ways is like a building. It's the temple of God, which he is going to address when we get to verses 16 and following. And so he does this on purpose. He wants to shift 
because he wants to talk about foundations and he wants to talk about building and what you put upon that foundation when we talk about the church. But I think there's a second reason Paul may have intended to shift toward a building and structure and architecture and the idea of a foundation is because he knows the people that he's writing to. He knows his audience. He's writing to a church that is comprised of uh, Roman citizens and Greek citizens. And in the first century world, the Romans and the Greeks were world-renowned for their architecture and for their building structures and for their massive temples and coliseums and amphitheaters. Remember that Corinth was a city of about 100,000 people. So there was a lot of buildings in Corinth, a lot of architecture, a lot of large structures. To give you some idea of what that would have looked like, uh, Corinth was about the size of the city of Temple, Texas and Belton, Texas combined. That's about 100,000 people. That's a pretty big city in the ancient world. It would have been considered a mega city in the first century world, 100,000 people all living together. And they were known for grand building structures. It's interesting that uh, lately my family and, uh, and I have been watching a documentary series called The Lost Treasures of Rome. And, uh, and basically it's a series where they are excavating different uh, findings, different ancient finds in and around the city of Rome, and they are uncovering new things. And what I have discovered watching this series is that most of the building that took place in Rome and places like ancient uh, Greece as well uh, was not actually funded and undertaken by the government itself. Most of it was done by private individuals and private wealthy families who desired to make a name for themselves. And so oftentimes these ginormous uh, amphitheaters and public bath houses and sometimes bridges um, were funded and built by private individuals because what they would do is they would build these massive structures and then somewhere, usually over an archway or maybe on one of the cornerstones in the foundation, they will discover, the archaeologists will discover a inscription that lists the name of the person or the family and who they were, and maybe what their title was or their position within the city, and maybe for whom they built it. Sometimes they would build these structures in honor of one of their gods. All of that is to say that the people of Corinth were very familiar with buildings, with structures, with the importance of foundations. And so Paul wants to move in that direction, and he does so in verse 10. And he says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. What I always appreciate about Paul is that it's great to see him constantly giving credit to God. Notice how he begins Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me. So although he describes himself as a skilled master builder, Paul wants to keep reminding him that it has nothing to do with him. 
Whatever gifts Paul has, whatever skills he has, whatever abilities he has, whatever usefulness he has been in ministry and for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God, he wants to keep reminding them, it's not about me. And he wants to remind them of that regularly, you see, because the church in Corinth believed that it was about them. They're so wise. They're so spiritually mature. They know what they're doing. When it comes to church, whatever else, they're borrowing from the wisdom of the world. And Paul ends up telling them, as we saw back at the beginning of chapter 3, that you all really are infants in Christ. You think you are so mature, but you are really just infants in Christ. Paul wants them to understand that this is true not only of his ministry, but it's also true of the ministries in Corinth. It's also true of all of their giftedness. It's also true of their church. It is true of every ministry. If you are involved in some sort of ministry that God has been using you for, and that ministry is successful, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing people, and people are enjoying it, and they are telling you about it and how much they have been blessed by what you are doing, just know that you are simply a tool, a vessel that God is using. Even when it comes to farming, you know, that's what Paul is talking about. When, he, when you look back at verses 5 to 8, one plants and another waters, Paul is basically saying, look, I'm just like a spreader, right? I have a spreader at home. I put in it uh, fertilizer or I'll put in it, you know, fire ant killer, and uh, you push it across the yard, and it spins, and it just scatters whatever it is you're trying to spread. Paul sees himself as, I'm just a spreader. I'm just a tool that God used. He dumps the seed into me, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he just uses me to spread the seed everywhere. And Apollos, well, he's just a watering bucket. So if you're involved in ministry, understand that this is true of all of us. We are all just spreaders and buckets. And without God using us, we sit there idle and do nothing. We can do nothing in and of ourselves for the glory of God. This is true of this church. I mean, I may have been the one who... uh, you know, initially planted the church as the, the church planting pastor. I wasn't the only one. Obviously, it was done with three other families involved. But at the end of the day, this church has not gotten to where it is because of me. In fact, it's gotten to where it is despite me. God didn't need me. God just needed someone with a pulse. And he just happened to use me. In fact, I think he was scraping the bottom of the barrel when he used me. But it's not about us. It is always about God. God simply using people that really have nothing to offer. You see that time and time again throughout the Bible, right? God calls Moses, who says, you know, I I can't even speak. I've got a stuttering problem. God says, no, you're going to be my prophet. God calls David the runt of the litter. You're going to be the king of Israel. God called Paul a persecutor of the church, someone who hated Christians. 
and says, you're going to be the greatest of my apostles. God enjoys using the weak and the foolish things of this world to bring himself the greatest amount of glory. And so Paul says, like a skilled master builder, the word skilled, interesting, is the Greek word sophos. It's related to the word sophia, wise, uh, builder, a wise, a skilled, an intelligent builder. The word master builder, those two words, is one in the Greek, it's architecton. It's where we get our English word, architecture, or architect. And it does mean that. It's not just a builder, it is a master builder. And so Paul says, like a skilled, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon this foundation. So while Paul sees himself as a skilled master builder, it's not arrogance, right? He recognizes that it is all about the grace of God, that Paul laid the foundation and someone else is building upon that foundation. And that someone else, by the way, is not Apollos. We know that because of chapter 16, verse 12. If you look there, you'll see that Apollos is with him when he writes this letter. Because he says, I urged Apollos to go visit with you, but he doesn't want to go at this time. He will come at a later time and visit with you. So who the someone else that is building upon the foundation, we don't entirely know. It doesn't really matter. I think Paul left it anonymous because he doesn't want to point fingers. The point is not who's building upon the foundation. The point is what they are going to put upon the foundation. And the point that he ultimately wants to make is what is this foundation. But right here, what Paul is driving home in verse 10 is that it's all about teamwork. It's all about teamwork. I planted the seeds. Someone else does the watering. God provides the growth. I laid the foundation. Someone else is building upon it, right? Paul wants to be very careful not to claim any credit for himself. It is God who grows the crops. It is God who ultimately builds the building and puts it together. Paul will talk about that, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll look there in a few minutes. But in the end, Paul wants to drive home the point that he saw himself as simply um, an instrument being used of God, that in and of himself, in and of himself, Paul saw that he is nothing. He's a nobody without God. He is useless without God. And I think that is important for all of us to remember, because if we forget that, then pride begins to creep in. We start to become arrogant. We start to think, oh, boy, I am a wonderful gift to God because look at what I've been able to accomplish for him. It reminded me of a story that was uh, shared in a book that, uh, that I recently read, and I want to share it with you, and I'm just going to read it to you because uh, I don't want to mess up the details, and it, it's, it's uh, worth hearing. But, uh, but in this book, the, uh, the author is uh, recounting an event where someone who was the former um, undersecretary of defense, so he was the former undersecretary of defense, 
who is um, uh, giving a speech now as a, as a citizen. He is no longer the Undersecretary of Defense. He is giving a speech at a, a very important conference with a lot of important people. And uh, while he's giving this speech on leadership, he's giving a speech on leadership, he uh, stops during his speech and he picks up a styrofoam cup that's got coffee in it and he takes a sip uh, from his styrofoam cup. And, uh, and then that's where he stops and he kind of breaks away from his speech. And he says this, you know, I spoke here last year. I presented at this same conference on this same stage. But last year, I was still an undersecretary. I flew here in business class, and when I landed, there was someone waiting for me at the airport to take me to my hotel. Upon arriving at my hotel, there was someone else waiting for me. They had already checked me into the hotel, and so they handed me my keys and escorted me up to the room. The next morning when I came down again, there was someone waiting for me in the lobby to drive me to this same venue that we are in today. I was taken through a back entrance, shown to the green room, and handed a cup of coffee in a beautiful ceramic cup. But this year, I stand here to speak, as I stand here to speak to you, I am no longer the undersecretary. I flew here in coach class. And when I arrived at the airport yesterday, there was no one there to meet me. I took a taxi to the hotel, and when I got there, I checked myself in. And I went by myself to my room. This morning, I came down to the lobby and caught another taxi to come here. I came in the front door, found my way to the backstage. Once there, I asked one of the techs if there was any coffee. He pointed to a coffee machine on a table against the wall. And so I walked over, and I poured myself a cup of coffee into this here styrofoam cup. It occurs to me, the ceramic cup they gave me last year was never meant for me at all. It was meant for the position I held. I deserve the styrofoam cup. My friends, we all deserve the styrofoam cup. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you do, regardless of how God may use you for his glory and for the benefit of the saints, we all deserve the styrofoam cup. Because in and of ourselves, without God, we are nobodies. We are nothing without him. But here's the point that Paul wants to drive home in verse 11. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, and we'll look more at that, uh, the meaning of that sentence. I'm going to leave that alone until we get to verses 12 to 15, because there he'll talk about how we should build on it and why we should be careful. But then in verse 11, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is, as the master builder, Paul has laid a foundation to try to somehow relay that foundation, to try somehow to replace that foundation or to add to that foundation 
or somehow to improve upon that foundation, Paul is telling them is to invite disaster. You have a good, solid foundation. Leave it alone. Don't mess with it. By foundation, Paul means the person and work of Christ. We know that because that has been his driving point since the beginning of the book. But in particular, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, I didn't come with all this great, lofty, philosophical wisdom and intelligence. I came with a simple message of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Christ is what I came to you with. That is the foundation that Paul is speaking of. And we know that because he specifically says that. In Romans chapter 15, Romans 15, primarily verse 20, but to give it context, I want to start in verse 18. Paul says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. That's the attitude that every Christian ought to have. The only thing I'm going to talk about is not me. I'm going to talk about what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So where the gospel of Jesus Christ has been proclaimed, Paul says the foundation has already been laid. And so Paul sees himself as the person that lays the foundation. He likes to work with concrete. We'll let someone else do the finished carpentry. He wants to lay the foundation and then move on and let someone else do the building. But the point is that the foundation Paul speaks of is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It is the person and work of Christ. Yes, we say the gospel, but I just want to be clear that when we talk about the gospel, the gospel is not just Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and if you'll believe, you'll be saved. The gospel very much includes the entire person of Christ. Who is he? He is God incarnate. He is the self-revelation of God. He is the Messiah prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament. He is the King of kings who will return. Because to simply say that Jesus died on the cross for sins, we have to ask the question, who is Jesus? And here's why. 
Because when I say the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins, you know, Mormons will agree with that. And JWs will agree with that. And Roman Catholics will agree with that. They don't have the gospel because they don't understand the person of Christ. The gospel is a correct understanding of the person and work of Christ in his life of obedience, which leads to justification in his life, death, and resurrection. It's the whole kit and caboodle. It matters. However, elsewhere, Paul talks about the apostles and the prophets as being the foundation of the church. He says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says there. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the question is, what gives? Which is it, Paul? Is Christ the foundation or is he just the cornerstone and the prophets and the apostles are the foundation? I think it's both and. I don't think it's either or. And here's why. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture, which was written by the apostles and the prophets, all scripture is the very breath of God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All scripture written by the prophets and the apostles is the very breath of God. It is the word of God. And John 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word of God. He is the self-revelation of God. And then we're told by the author of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that in past generations, God spoke to us, uh, to our forefathers, through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. How? Just directly in the Gospels? Yes. But also through the apostles. This is all Jesus speaking to us. This, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is all Jesus speaking to us because Jesus is God and Jesus walks through every page of the Old Testament and every page of the New Testament. Finally, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, talking about foundations. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Christians don't like to hear that, right? Doing stuff. Sounds like works. I don't like doing, right? Hexen, quit taking us to these passages that talk about doing. We don't want to do stuff. We just want to believe stuff. It's easier. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, on a solid foundation. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. People who read the Bible and go, well, I don't know about all that. Seems so technical. You know, I'll just love God, kind of figure out my own way. He'll be good with that. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Paul describes himself as a skilled master builder who lays solid foundations. You know why? Not only because God got a hold of him, but Paul read this and followed it. This is what it says. This is what we ought to do as Christians and in the church. The church should look like according to the word of God. The foundation for the church and for the Christian life must be, first and foremost, the gospel. But more broadly and closely related, it must be based upon, built upon, grounded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, i.e., the Word of God, the Scriptures. Jesus is the Word. The problem is that the church in Corinth were attempting knowingly or unknowingly, to add something to the foundation that Paul had already laid. That's what he drives home in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Quit borrowing from worldly wisdom, he tells the church in Corinth. Stop borrowing from the world and adding to what I've already given you. All you need is the word of God. And apparently, they don't learn their lesson. They keep on with this problem because we'll see later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, listen to this. Paul says this to them, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Why? For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, they are committing the same fatal flaw that the church in Galatia was committing. Paul goes there, he lays a solid foundation, gives them the right gospel, leaves, and then they start following other teachings. They start incorporating the things of the world into the pure gospel. And they start to make a mess. The same problem that Galatia is having is the same problem. Galatia and the church in Corinth is the same problem that many Christians and many churches have today. Many Christians and many churches are still struggling with this, knowingly or unknowingly. We want the gospel and something else. We want to live our lives by the Bible and something else. As Bodie Bauckham 
wisely stated in his book, Family Driven Faith. He says the problem with many Christians today is that we get our marriage counseling from Dr. Phil. We get our parenting advice from Dr. Spock. We get our sexual advice from Dr. Ruth. And the only time we go to Dr. Jesus is when there's no other doctors to turn to. A solid and healthy biblical church, a solid and healthy biblical Christian life must be grounded upon and focused upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, primarily that justification is by faith alone. But more broadly, a healthy and unified church, a healthy biblical Christian life or marriage or whatever it is that you are dealing with must be grounded upon Christ alone, upon Scripture alone. That was what the Protestant Reformation was all about. It was part of what it was all about. The battle wasn't just over what is the nature of justification, what is the meaning of the gospel, but it was also where does the authority of the church and the Christian life reside? And the church argued, the Catholic church argued, that authority resides within Scripture and the teachings of the church. And the reformers said, no. The authority for the church and the Christian life resides within Scripture alone. That is where we go to live our life. Don't try to add something to this. Don't try to add something to Christ. Don't try to add something to the gospel. Don't borrow from the wisdom of the world, which really is not wisdom, it's just foolishness, because when you try to add to the foundation that has already been laid in your life and for the church, you invite disaster. The foundation for a strong, healthy, unified church and Christian life is Christ alone. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so easy for us to fall into this trap. It is so easy for us to watch our television shows, to watch our movies, to gain information from our favorite news outlet, to scroll through social media, to read our non-Christian books, and to pick up ideas here and there that we think sound like good ideas. Well, let's just add that to our Christianity. Father, I pray that you would help us to not do that. I pray that we would follow the words of Paul, that we would follow the words of Christ, that we would listen to the words of Christ, to the word of God, and we would seek to do it, whether it makes sense or not. That we would seek to live out 
what has been revealed to us through your word. And Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name.